Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 413 of the Juice Box Podcast. On today's show, I have Dr. Addy Benito. Addy is going to share so much information today about thyroid disease. You're going to just understand it front to back by the time you're done. If you're living with type 1 diabetes and don't currently have thyroid disease, I still think this episode has a lot to offer you. Please remember that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. Dr. Benito is board certified in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism. Addy attended medical school in Spain and completed a residency in internal medicine at Pennsylvania Hospital at the University of Pennsylvania Health System and a fellowship in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism at the University of Pennsylvania. She has also completed a two-year fellowship in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona Center of Excellence in Integrative Medicine, where she is a guest faculty member and has developed the curriculum for an integrative endocrinology module, which has been incorporated to the fellowship. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by the Omnipod Tubeless Insulin Pump. You can get yourself a free, no-obligation demo of the Omnipod today by going to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box. And to learn more about the Dexcom G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor, go to dexcom.com forward slash juice box. Become acquainted with the great work that's done at Touched by Type 1 at their website, on Facebook, or Instagram. TouchedbyType1.org. My name is Adi Benito. I am an endocrinologist, and I, in particular, practice what I call integrative endocrinology, which is using hormones as well as nutrition, herbs, botanicals, and uh, supplements. I studied herbal medicine um, as well as uh, integrative medicine, um, and that's that's what I practice. All right. Now, I found you because my daughter was diagnosed with hypothyroidism a number of years ago, and people who listen to the podcast know she's had other ailments like just joint soreness and things like that. So we have tried to thoughtfully break Arden down into segments and, and go through them slowly and try to pick through them because I, I found that when you try to go at everything at the same time, it gets confusing, right? There's You, you never know if, if the success or failure you're seeing is anecdotal or if you're misunderstanding where it's coming from. So we... Obviously, I mean, the podcast is wrapped around using insulin. We first figured that out. Arden's A1C has been five, two to six for about six years now. Um, she eats whatever, you know, she, we don't limit her, her nutrition to get her to that, um, which might mean like yesterday, Arden had a pretty big salad for dinner and the day before she had a waffle. Uh, so uh, <laughs> a, she, she eats a, variety, a, a wide variety of foods. But our first run in well before we knew you was... She got her, she started with Synthroid. She got Synthroid, all of her symptoms went away. And Arden's symptoms, by the way, when, when we figured out she had hypothyroidism, was she basically couldn't hold her head up anymore. It was mm -hmm. just like she was on a dimmer and someone was turning her down slowly and she just didn't have the energy to come back up again. The Synthroid brought her right back. And then she grew significantly, which I'm going to ask you about later, if yep. that's common or not. But Arden was at one time the smallest child 
in her school. And she is hmm. now probably one of the tallest girls in her high school, which is fascinating. She went from like five, well, she was five one, maybe 75 pounds, and she hmm. went to over five seven, like 130. Wow. Yeah. So when she started having these joint issues, we thought, oh, it's because she's growing so quickly. And then she stopped growing, and that didn't end up being it. And you know, then you kind of go back to your endocrinologist that handles the the diabetes. And you're like, maybe you know, is the thyroid medication not right? I hear from a lot of people that it's more of a sci- it's more of an art than a science. And and no, 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 it's fine. Her labs look good, which was always the mm-hmm. answer, right? She's in range. Right. Um, and then a, a person who listens to this show, uh, who I've who I've become a little friendly with, Vicky said to me one day that her thyroid issue was always a mess until she started to think outside of the box. And she told me that the way she did that was to find a doctor who would be more thoughtful and holistic about it. And that Mm -hmm. idea led us to finding you. Um, Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I told people I was going to ask you to come on the show. And I know I sent you the questions and they asked a ton of questions. But I think before we get to them, and maybe like you said in your note, Possibly a lot of these questions are going to get answered while you're speaking. Can you, can you please just do what you do? Explain hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, Hashimoto's, this whole thing that no one seems to understand. Yeah. Yeah. So um, if you think of thyroid, thyroid disorders, the most common are those of thyroid function. So dysfunction of the thyroid, and that includes both hypo, low thyroid, Mm -hmm. and hyper high thyroid. So within those, hypo is more common. Hypo, low thyroid is more common than hyperthyroidism. In the whole world, when we talk about hypothyroidism, the most likely cause is iodine deficiency in the entire world. Now in the US, because we still are considered iodine sufficient, meaning we still have enough iodine in our diets in general, Mm -hmm. um, the most likely cause of hypothyroidism is autoimmune thyroid disease. And that is Hashimoto's thyroiditis. The second most likely cause is actually radiation, both um, external beam radiation, so what would you would have if you had cancer on your neck or a lymphoma, but also um, radioactive iodine, which patients with hyperthyroidism actually are treated with many, many times. So within the realm of autoimmune thyroid disease, hypothyroidism is one aspect, hyper is the other. So autoimmune thyroid disease encompasses both Hashimoto's thyroiditis and Graves' disease. Hashimoto's thyroiditis tends to cause hypothyroidism. Graves' disease always causes hyperthyroidism until later on in the disease or because of the treatment, you can end up with hypothyroidism. There are some patients who have Hashimoto's thyroiditis who will develop hyperthyroidism, and we call that Hashitoxicosis. Toxicosis meaning just too much. Mm-hmm. So, Autoimmune thyroid disease, like any other autoimmune condition, is partly genetic and partly environmental. Of the genes that um, cause autoimmune thyroid disease, we have really advanced tremendously. And if you look at the, the genes that actually are linked between autoimmune thyroid disease and type 1 diabetes, there are many common genes. And that's why actually those two conditions happen in clusters in families. So you have one member with type 1 diabetes and a different member of the family with autoimmune thyroid disease. If you think of the risk of autoimmune thyroid disease in the general population, it's close to 10%. 
if you have a relative with type 1 diabetes, that risk is 48%, much higher. Wow. That's almost a Significantly coin flip. Higher. Yeah, that's almost a coin yes. flip, Yes. Right? Yep. Okay. Right. And if you yourself have type 1 diabetes, the risk of having autoimmune thyroid disease is 50%. And if you have autoimmune thyroid disease, the risk of developing clinical disease, so either hypo or hyper, is also 50%. Hmm. So think of four people with type 1 diabetes. Two of them will have autoimmune thyroid disease. One out of the four will develop clinical thyroid disease. Okay. Now, autoimmune thyroid disease um, usually is characterized by antibodies. So again, this protein that your body makes usually to defend yourself, but in the case of autoimmunity, it's sort of like attacking your own body, right? So antibodies are sort of the hallmark of autoimmune thyroid disease. However, there is up to 20% of people with Hashimoto's who don't have antibodies. So not having antibodies doesn't mean you don't have autoimmune thyroid disease. But if you have the antibodies, it's a marker for autoimmune thyroid disease. So finding them is helpful, not finding them, not that helpful. <laughs> well, that, that makes your job interesting. <laughs> right. <laughs> it does. Yeah, because then you have to think am I seeing autoimmune thyroid disease that is not showing with the antibodies? And sometimes I may use an ultrasound to tell me that. Mm -hmm. Or am I seeing nutritional deficiency? So iodine deficiency and maybe iron, which is a cofactor for iodine um, in the production of thyroid hormone. Yeah. I have to say that given that, I'm beginning to understand why most people can't seem to get to a resolution that is valuable, completely valuable for them. Because having worked with you for Arden and for Kelly, the intensity of our interaction in time and mm -hmm. and information, and there not being large gaps in between when we spoke, I found to be, it was exciting actually, because I felt like this was the, I felt like my our interaction with you was sort of like other people's interaction with the podcast in that it wasn't, I'll go to the endo, they'll test my A1C, I'll make some adjustments, come back in three months, notice nothing happened, try again, two years later, my A1C is still seven and a half. Um, right. It was the intensity and the ability to get to you um, more directly because you have a an uncommon practice. Like you're a completely private practice, right? So yes. like we paid you in cash, like you don't take insurance. Yeah. But with that comes the ability to send you an email, which is yeah. lovely because then there's no big gaps and, and you can move along kind of quickly. I guess my question to you is, why is what you know so difficult to find when the issue is so common? It's a, it's a good question. And I don't really know the answer, to be honest. I mean, I practice, I was part of Penn for me. I trained a Penn and then I worked at Penn and I have to tell you that when I worked at Penn, um, you know, yeah, we usually with somebody with hypo or hyperthyroidism, we assume that it's autoimmune. Mm -hmm. um, we don't tend to test for antibodies. I don't even remember testing people for other autoimmune conditions, which now is part of my routine practice. If I find somebody with autoimmune thyroid disease, even with that type 1 diabetes, I will be screening those patients for celiac as well as for something called autoimmune gastritis which can lead to low iron and low B12, and many times it's actually the cause of their symptoms, not the thyroid itself. So you have to think of the person in, in its entirety. It's not just one aspect, and especially when you're thinking of autoimmunity. Okay. 
because it can affect many parts of you know of your body and of your life. I don't know how much of the history of this disease that you're aware of. I'm assuming more than me. So I'm going to ask: Is this becoming more common as time goes on, or is it, yes. or is it just we're noticing it now? No, no. So even type one diabetes, we're finding that is you know people are calling that an epidemic in the 21st century, and you would think you know. When we talk about autoimmune conditions, we talk about genes, but we talk about environment. There's a complex interaction between genes and the environment. Now, the genes don't change that quickly. You know, in just 100 years, the genes are not going to change that are going to make somebody have more likely to have type 1 diabetes than, you know, 100 years ago. So there's something in the environment that we are, we're not, we're not sure what it is. You know, I can tell you that we definitely think of viruses, we think of bacteria as triggering those genes to sort of manifest and cause the conditions. We, for in the case of the thyroid, um, having too much iodine, we know is a risk factor for developing both autoimmune thyroid disease and for developing hypothyroidism, maybe you have Hashimoto's. So just making sure that you don't take any one supplement from the store just because it says iodine and you think it's good for you. Now, it's a little hard to overdose with, you know, food. So you don't have to worry about whether you're eating too much fish or shrimp or, you know, nori. That's not going to happen. It's more with supplements. So it's that complex interaction between the environment and the genes that we're still trying to understand. Um, We've made some advances into the genes. We don't really understand what in the environment is causing people to develop more autoimmune diseases. I would bet that there's a lot of endocrine disrupting chemicals, we call them. So these chemicals in the environment that disrupt how hormones work, that probably have a role in this increased uh, prevalence of autoimmune conditions. But it it builds, you imagine it builds over generations, not just like my mom used Tupperware, so my daughter has diabetes. Like. Yes. Okay. So not it actually goes, yeah, you oh. can see that transgenerationally, you can see that. So you actually see in, there's definitely studies in the grandmothers that use these Teflon pants, so this coated pants, the non-stick ones, mm-hmm. and then their granddaughters developing diabetes, I mean, obesity. So it actually goes through generations. Wow. That's That's the really difficult piece about this endocrine disrupting chemicals is not just what you're exposed to is what your grandparents might have been exposed to um and that it transmits to you yeah, Eddie, i tried to make a uh, a ridiculous <laughs> example to make a different point and you're like no that's right no I was like, oh, okay. yeah 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 you're you're into something <laughs> okay all right so but it, it is it is it is it more prevalent here because i guess that makes sense then if it's more prevalent in the u.s the autoimmune piece of this it's probably because we're more quote unquote advanced in things like like you just said like a non-stick pan or i mean should people be throwing their non-stick pans away do you own a non-stick pan is my question i don't yeah, i don't know. Um, i actually no i don't yeah. i actually think people should throw them away yeah. i i i think yeah i think you can use other uh pans that are non-stick right yeah that I, are not non-stick <laughs> I, well, I did that with um it's funny, like a, like 10 or so years ago, I just said to Kelly, I'm like, I'm getting rid of all these nonstick pans. And I'm just going to buy like just regular, you know, stainless steel pans. Yeah. And uh, she's like, but I like them because they don't stick. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, well, wash them. It'll be okay. You, you know, like yeah. it just, it, and I don't know why I didn't know anything when I did it. It was really just a feeling like, you know, your Amazing. daughter gets type one diabetes and you're like, yeah. all right, well, I, I, let me start thinking about how people live before this happened all mm-hmm. the time, you know, and, and try to go backwards a little bit anyway. Um, all right. So obviously the people listening to the podcast are into the, you know, in the sweet spot for, for this issue as well. And I'm hard pressed to know 
you know, anybody who doesn't have type one diabetes, who doesn't also have another autoimmune issue. It's not always uh, mm-hmm. thyroidism, but uh, different, different issues with their thyroid. But when people are diagnosed with type one, it's sometimes the very first time they realize that there's autoimmune problems in their family line. Um, it's one of the questions I ask every time I, I talk to somebody, I'm like, you know, were you the first one? And, oh, yeah, I was definitely the first one. Nobody has celiac. Oh, well, my grandmother does have celiac. Oh, like, and then you start finding, you can see it, you know. But anyway, when it becomes obvious to them that there's an issue, they start becoming more hyper aware of other things. and They start paying attention. So what are the kind of telltale signs that people should be looking for if their thyroid's on its way out? So what you notice with Arden is pretty common, uh, lack of growth. So that's pretty typical, both actually in type 1 or even with that type 1 diabetes, kids who have thyroid disease will not grow. Mm. Um, so that's pretty common. If uh, you have a, a child with type 1 diabetes, in addition to not growing, they actually may develop more hypoglycemic episodes. Hypoglycemia is a big one. And actually, that's a pretty big one for almost any other autoimmune condition, whether it's celiac, whether it's Addison's disease, which is the lack of adrenal hormone, um, thyroid, actually both even hyperthyroidism sometimes can cause hypoglycemia. It can also go into the ketoacidosis part, but so hypoglycemia, when before you had a child that was well-controlled, suddenly with the same, you know, whatever you're using is causing hypoglycemia, using more episodes, that should be a sign that something is not quite right. Either your kid is not absorbing uh, glucose well from their gut and there's a gut issue like celiac or autoimmune gastritis, or your metabolism has changed and metabolism is affected by thyroid. Wow. Okay. All right. Um, so now here comes the issue, right? I notice it. I go to the doctor. Hey, I was listening to a podcast. These people told me that if this was happening, it might be thyroid. My kid seems to fit the bill. I fit the bill and I test. And then the doctor comes back and says, no, I'm sorry, you're in range. Um, now we knew what to do when Arden was tested, quote unquote, in range and had symptoms, but we only knew because my poor wife went untreated for, I think, seven years. While, while honestly, while hypothyroidism ravaged my wife, it, it really, it just, it just really decimated her. We would go to doctors, say, look, she has all the obvious signs of this. They'd test her and say, she's in range. It's not that. It was, it was honestly one day in an office. We were so desperate. I wouldn't say I threatened the doctor, but what I said, <laughs> but what I said was, will the medicine hurt her if she doesn't have hypothyroidism? And he said, no. And I'm like, well, then for God's sakes, give it to her, you, you know, and I'm not going to, I, there's no reason to over-exaggerate between four days and a week, she turned back into the person I knew. It was, it was really, Amazing. really fascinating. Um, but some of the stuff that happened to her, she just, it, she's having trouble, like still to this day, rebounding from, but because of that mm-hmm. experience, when the doctor said, no, Arden's in range, I said, I don't care, give her Synthroid. And boom, she came right back. Um, but not, most people, most people aren't assholes like me, I guess is what I'm saying. They're not gonna sit in their doctor's <laughs> office and just be like, no, I don't care. And because that's a real problem, that white coat problem, right? Like people won't stand up, they won't push yeah. back. What do you use, like if you were a doctor in that position, what argument would get you to think, all right, I'll, I'll listen to these people and try this. So the first one I will look for is a goiter. Uh, if that person had a goiter and large thyroid gland, that to me will be a sign that the body's really trying to do something that it can't, 
right? So you think of a goiter, the thyroid has become enlarged. And there's a reason for that. Either you don't have enough iodine, you don't have enough thyroid hormones, something is going on. Um, if you have a history of autoimmunity, um, if you have either autoimmune thyroid disease already, you already have antibodies. Um, and I see nothing else. You know, I'm going to be looking. So what I want to make sure when I see somebody who has, as you say, maybe perfectly normal thyroid, and we'll talk about what normal really means. Um, I want to make sure that I'm not missing something else that I could be treated. So whether it's iron deficiency, which I think is very common in women, not just anemia, you don't have to be anemic to have iron deficiency. And iron deficiency causes many symptoms that you see with hypothyroidism. So brain fog, fatigue, muscle fatigability, um, hair loss, all those happen with low iron, similar to low thyroid. So that I'm going to look for definitely in my practice. But then if somebody comes to me and I've looked at everything and I don't see anything, I just saw a woman recently who was feeling really not well. She was having joint pains. I actually sent it to a rheumatologist thinking it was an autoimmune um, rheumatoid condition. Um, and I knew that this woman had Hashimoto's. She doesn't have antibodies, but she has um, the look of autoimmune thyroid on her ultrasound of, of her thyroid. Okay. So uh, when she came back from the rheumatologist with, with tears in her eyes saying, you know, she didn't find anything. I said, let's just give you thyroid hormone. It's not going to hurt you. I'm, I know how to do that. I'm not going to hurt you. Let's see how this works. Let's give you a trial. There's nothing wrong. Just like with Kelly, with your wife, you know, within a few weeks, she was feeling better. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you have to bite the bullet and say, you know, have we looked elsewhere? And if we have, and we have no answer, would it, like you said, would it be wrong to do a thyroid hormone? Would it be wrong? And again, if you know how to treat with thyroid hormone, there's, there's no wrong. There really isn't. Well, after Arden's big growth spurt, she began mm -hmm. to, it's interesting, I'm kind of telling this story so people understand how your brain will trick you. She starts having the same symptoms again. But because mm -hmm. in my mind now, she's on Synthroid, this must be a new thing. It has nothing to do with a thyroid hormone. I don't know why, still in retrospect, can't figure out why it didn't occur to us that she'd put on so much weight that her dose probably wasn't high enough. But there she was again, struggling to get out of bed struggling to make it through the day at school. She'd come home and call like, I have so many pictures of Arden asleep at a countertop, like sitting in a bench chair, wow. laying forward asleep on a piece of stone, you, you know, which is, you know, just out. And then her blood pressure started to fall and we went to the doctor mm. and then the doctor saw the low blood pressure and their mind went right to heart. And now we're spending weeks going to specialists, giving Arden tests. Maybe wow. she has, I forget one of the things, POTS maybe or something. They had her raising her legs oh, wow. and doing all this stuff. And it took me a couple of weeks and I finally said to Kelly, I'm like, this is just the thyroid medication. Like, why did we not think of this? So I said to the doctor, well, let's test for this first and check on this. Maybe we should get her down to children's. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Why don't we just adjust this? No, 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 her labs are okay. And so one day I just said, I don't care. And I took a bunch of her pills. I didn't know what I was doing. I cut some of them in half and I started giving her a pill and a half. And in a few days, she was okay. And I called her endocrinologist back mm -hmm. before you. And I said, look, like it or not, this is what I did. She's all right now. I need a different prescription for her. Um, again, I don't think mm -hmm. that's something most people would do. Um, but no, I, I think you're right. I just have this and it's the diabetes. I think I've been trained by having a child so young with type one diabetes in another medical area where people don't give you a ton of good actionable advice right so it just has come to me and i'm like look i'm not waiting anymore like i'm not 
I, I just, I took everything I knew and I thought I'm not going to hurt her. I'll give her a tiny bit more. She pepped up. Now it's really important after that to like find out, you know, you got to get labs done because too much as we, you know, it throws her the other Mm -hmm. direction, which is obviously not, not good for her as well. Um, And I'm not saying people should just willy nilly take their medication. This is just what happened here. It was a, you know, it's a good example of my labs look good. So it can't be that. And this is just seems like one of these issues that doesn't play by those rules frequently. Um, Mm -hmm. What else goes into it? Say we have our, our thyroid medications. Good. Talk about the, the supplements and the vitamins that, that you like to incorporate as well. Yeah. So if somebody has um, autoimmune thyroid disease, we now have um, several studies looking at the use of supplements, minerals, vitamins to help. And I'm going to say that none of these have been shown to help prevent thyroid disease. So in other words, if you have antibodies and you're looking for ways to protect yourself from developing thyroid disease, these have not studied, have not been studied. And so we don't know if they will prevent you from developing thyroid disease. Mm -hmm. But once you have um, autoimmune thyroid and your thyroid levels start to, to be a little bit off, things like selenium, selenium has a lot of studies um, on autoimmune thyroid disease, in particular in Hashimoto's, but there are also studies on Graves' disease. Um, most of the studies on selenium are positive studies, meaning they have a beneficial effect. Um, they help with the antibodies, they help with the way the thyroid looks on the ultrasound, and they also help with well-being. So to me, that's usually something that I would use in people with um, autoimmune thyroid disease. Um, in the beginning, when the studies were done, the doses that were used of selenium were quite high, with about 200 micrograms. And in this part of the country, we're not really deficient in selenium. So the concern was, could selenium, because high selenium can also be linked to type 2 diabetes, not type 1, type 2, uh, but also glaucoma. Most recent studies don't seem to indicate that that's so much of a concern as we initially thought, but I still you know, one, I'm actually, I'm not giving somebody too much selenium. Most recent studies on selenium have even used 80 micrograms, which is what you probably find in a multiple vitamin mm. with selenium. That's a pretty nice dose for autoimmune thyroid disease. There are studies now using a combination of selenium and something called myo-inositol. Inositol is a substance, it's almost in the beef, it's not exactly a B vitamin, but it's in the beef family. And it's both a thyroid hormone sensitizer and a, an insulin sensitizer. So it's been also used in patients with Hashimoto's thyroiditis and the combination of selenium, about 80 micrograms with inositol, it really helps people bring the TSH down and also lowers the antibodies. Um, There, of course, we know about the connection between vitamin D and thyroid, as well as type 1 diabetes as something with the vitamin D receptor, that there's something that is not completely right. So I'll also use vitamin D to help with this autoimmunity um, of the body. And then there's there's a study, a couple of studies on something called black cumin seeds. And that is the um, the herb or the seed itself is called Nigella sativa. And black cumin seed um, as a seed itself, as a powder, has been used in people with Hashimoto's to help them with their TSH, also help with their cholesterol, and as well as weight. It helped people lose weight um, when that was used after two months. Um those are probably the, the ones that we have the most data for um, and the ones that I will use more commonly. I also talk to people about not having too much iodine as a supplement, um, but enough iodine because, again, iodine is important for thyroid hormone production. Yeah. So just enough, not too much. Well, I, um, have to, I have to say, I just want to stop you for a second. 
it's so nice to hear information like this coming from someone with your background. And I, not that other people saying things like this, you know, aren't right or, 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 or well-informed, but when we hear supplements, I think people tend to think, oh, hippies, quacks, you, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like that kind of thing. Nobody really thinks about, yeah. you know, the medical field paying attention to stuff like this. And you're a, you're a legit doctor who, who has a, <laughs> a, has a, a, has a really impressive background and, and through some of the institutions you've been at as well. And so I'm glad you're talking about it because it really is, I mean, look, I know nothing about nothing, but COVID came and I went out and found a good source of vitamin D, uh, zinc, and a couple of other basic vitamins. And I was like, I'm taking these. I don't care. You, yeah. you know, like, and yeah. I've done really well over the last nine months or so. Yeah, I think, you know, it's always the question. And that's one of the answers when I studied at University of Arizona, my integrated medicine fellowship, you know, it's also it's always about risk versus benefit. Sort of the same idea we're talking about the thyroid hormone before for Arden, you know, or for my patient. What's the risk? What's the benefit? The same thing with supplements. What's the risk? What's the benefit? My concern with, especially with botanicals, is are you taking other medications and are the botanicals going to interfere with your medications? Are they going to interact? That to me is a big concern. I treat herbs like I treat medicine. They are medicine. They should be treated as, as equal. Um, I, you know, I think it's really funny when somebody will say, oh, this herb is going to cause some interaction with your medicine, but it's not really worth it. It's not really going to do anything. My point is like, if it's able to cause an interaction, it's able to cause an action. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, there, I, I think when I started um, working more of an integrative, uh, integrative practice, there was not a whole lot that I could actually offer patients. I mean, I could offer botanicals that have used, you know, the herbalists have used for millennia, but there wasn't a lot of, there were not a lot of studies that, you know, except for selenium and vitamin D, there was not a whole lot that had come out. Now we have studies like a talk on inositol. We actually have studies on ashwagandha, not in particular for hypo, for, excuse me, for Hashimoto's, but for hypothyroidism, ashwagandha seems to work. You know, up to a few years ago, we only had studies on animals. Now we have studies on humans. So I think there's actually more of an interest as well in the in the researchers in trying to understand how these botanicals and supplements do work. Mm -hmm. Well, I I'm I'm a, what you said just makes a ton of sense to me. I think it's labeling that confuses people, right? So if if mm -hmm. a substance is controlled by the government and therefore can be, um, you know, manufactured by a pharmaceutical company and then sold to you through your insurance. That's a reasonable thing to take. But, you know, <laughs> this thing over here that, you know, we can't make any money off of, <laughs> that must not be valuable at all. And I just don't think that that's the case. And and maybe it is for some things and not for others. I'm sure there are plenty of prescription medications that are not as valuable as people say they are and vice versa. But that it's being looked at by people who are thoughtful about it is the the part that makes me excited. You know, it's not just somebody yelling, try some dandelion. You, you know what I mean? Like, it's, <laughs> it, yeah. it's, you know, I took it once yeah. and I felt better. There's a basis for it. Right, right. There's yeah. a real reason to think this thing, like you said, is causing an action. And is that action something that's valuable for the person taking it? And if it is, great. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, whatever, right. great. You, you know, like yeah. I was told, and you know a bit about this because we've had to talk about it about Arden, but over the last two years, I've been struggling with not being able to retain iron in my in my system. My ferritin drops really, really low. Yep. And I was told this is genetic. You're not going to be able to impact this with um, with don't even try, you know, um, with any kind of supplements. But what I did was I researched well-made vitamins and 
I started taking an iron supplement along with an azorbic acid at the same time. And voila, turns out I can mm-hmm. absorb iron if I take a supplement, right? I was being told you can't, yeah. you can't, your body won't yeah. do that. And it was true. I was taking the iron and nothing was happening. Add an exorbitant acid to it. Boom. Suddenly my body can take it up. Why? Don't even care why. It just works. So I'm, I'm now, I actually had to be careful. Like I, I got my next blood test back and my fart and was so high. I was like, Ooh, it's working too well. And you know, and so I cut it back. A <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's an example. Yeah, I mean, and that's something. Um, yep, it is. And and I think if you if you understand a bit about how people who have autoimmune thyroid disease or type one diabetes sometimes you know both is at risk for this autoimmune gastritis, which is really the lack of stomach acid. And because you don't have stomach acid, you actually don't absorb. Um, so that sort of what you just said just brings me to think of you know people also thinking about that potential complication or, or another coexisting um, autoimmune condition that mm-hmm. may not allow them to absorb iron or B12 or, you know, anything else really. Right. So, so it's really important to be aware of that. Absolutely. It, it, it's, I feel like I'm doing better now. Like, I feel like I'm slowly moving into the best health of my life, which is ridiculous because I'm not in, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not working out constantly. I'm not one of those people. I'm not like, micronutrients and things like that. I'm just I'm living a pretty normal existence. But just prior to this, I had issues and I had such a blue collar mentality about it. Like, and by that, I mean, like, put your head down, keep moving forward. Don't stop. Do this till you die. Like, don't give up. You know what I mean? Like that hurts. Don't think about it. Can't lift your head up. Don't worry. Keep going. Keep going. You know, and um, and now I'm like, you know, I'm not going to make it much farther like that. Like, it'll be an impressive story mm-hmm. for the five people that remember me, but I'd like mm-hmm. to stay, you know, I want to keep going a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it turns out he had no right. iron in his system. Yes. We do take that as like weird badges of honor too. You go to the doctor and they say something like, I don't even know how you're standing. And you're like, that's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm standing even <laughs> though right. my ferritin was 13. Screw oh my you, Lord. rules. Yeah, right, right. But meanwhile, I wasn't standing. I ended up in the emergency wow. room eventually because I bent over to pick something up and my head almost went to the floor along with my hand. I was like, woo. Yeah. I, I just couldn't stay up yeah. anymore. Um, and then speaking of anecdotally, then we start having everybody in the family tested just to see what's up, you know. And Arden's ends up being really low too. But then we kind of realized that might be because of heavy bleeding from her periods. So we get her jacked back up again with right. an infusion, and she is still drifting down, but she's not falling the way I was. Mm-hmm. She's not going from up to down. And so I think the assumption is going to be after one more blood test that Arden's going to need to take an iron supplement as well, probably along with an exorbic acid, maybe mm-hmm. a couple of times a, a week. But, and I say this all the time about the podcast itself, and I know you don't listen to the show, but this podcast helps people use insulin. It's really valuable to them. But I only came to the information because of luck. Stay at home, dad, my background aligned with being able to kind of figure things out. Most people, this stuff is just coming at them a million miles an hour. They do what they're told when it doesn't work. They go, that didn't work. They walk away from it. Most people don't come to an answer. And that's the, that's why I wanted to have you on. Like I want to teach people how to come to some sort of a, a resolution when, when they find that they have a, mm-hmm. a thyroid issue. Um, and most people aren't going to find you. I mean, I, I basically had to beg you to see Arden. You were full. 
You know what I mean? When, when I found yeah. you, um, yeah. and most people aren't thinking about these things. So what do you, where do you think the conversation should go from here? Do you think we should jump into people's questions or do you have more yeah. that you'd like to add? Yeah. No, you're I, think we, I think we can do that. The Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor is the tool that I lean on the most for making decisions about my daughter's insulin. We use the information that Dexcom provides, and that's what her blood sugar is and what direction, if any, it's moving in. Not just what direction, but how fast in that direction. So I can tell, is this an 85 blood sugar that's super stable or is it falling or rising? Knowing that makes bolusing, basal adjustments, and meal times so much easier. You can learn more about the Dexcom G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor at dexcom.com forward slash juicebox. If you can't remember that, there are links right there in the show notes of your podcast player and at juiceboxpodcast.com. Check out the Dexcom G6 today. Are you using pens or syringes and thinking about trying an insulin pump? My suggestion would be to try the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump. It's the only pump without tubing. And it's super simple to wear discreetly if you'd like. The great thing about Omnipod is that you don't have to take my or someone else's word for it. You can actually try. Omnipod will send you a free, no obligation demo of their insulin pump so that you can wear it around the house or wherever else you are. Although let's be honest, we're all pretty much around the house right now and see if you like it. You'll be able to put it on, go about your days, bathe. Oh yeah, you could bathe with it. And you could actually swim with it if you wanted to. Omnipod allows you to continue to get your insulin, even during bathing and swimming. It's the only insulin pump that can say that. So if you're currently on MDI and you're thinking, yeah, I mean, I'd like a pump, but I don't like that idea of not having my basal insulin all the time. With Omnipod, you absolutely can, and you will. My daughter has been using an Omnipod tubeless insulin pump since she's four years old, and she's 16 right now. That means she's been wearing an Omnipod every day for over 12 years. Check it out. It's super simple to do. It'll take you five minutes at myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox to get that demo sent directly to you. Last thing, if you love watching people do nice stuff for other people with type 1 diabetes, you should check out touchedbytype1.org. They're a great organization doing wonderful things for people living with type 1. Touchedbytype1.org or check them out on Instagram or Facebook. Once again, the people that listen to this podcast were really great uh, and asked a ton of questions that I, I think most of them are valuable. Uh, why are thyroid antibodies seen in so many kids with autoimmune disorders who don't have thyroid disease? And subsequently, do you expect that those will eventually end up with thyroid disease? So antibodies might be the first sign of this autoimmune thyroid disease that, again, in only 50% of the cases will lead to thyroid disease. The other 50% will never develop thyroid disease. At the same time, you actually could have antibodies that are positive just because your body has an autoimmunity in it. In other words, just think of your 
immune systems are like almost like fireworks and it's almost like throwing little, you know, these sort of fireworks in different directions. And one of them could be an antibody for thyroid without you having the disease, without you really having autoimmune thyroid disease. So that can happen. Um, I'm going to look at what level of antibody you have. If you're like, you know, a little bit high, I might not really worry that much. I might keep an eye on it. If you're high, I'm going to say that's most likely is true autoimmune thyroid disease. And I'm going to keep a closer eye on you. In general, when people have autoimmune markers or antibodies for thyroid and their TSH is a bit off, it's more likely for them to develop thyroid disease than if they only have antibodies, but not a, a, an abnormal TSH. Okay. So it's worth, it's, it's worth keeping an eye on both over time um, just to make sure that you detect it. But if you see those antibodies, you're about a coin flip to end up with thyroid disease. Correct. Yeah. Okay. In the case of diabetes, it is. In the case of type one diabetes, it is. Okay. Um, and then, how common is it to have happen what happened to Arden and Kelly, which is they're in range, but they're experiencing symptoms? So I guess the first question is: Is that common uh, as a as what people notice? And can we talk about what in range really means and how to interpret that? So both good questions. So I don't think there are any studies looking at if you're in range, how likely that you have actually occult thyroid disease? Um, is it the autoimmunity itself that is affecting you? And if you treat with thyroid hormone, the immune system will actually do better and you feel better. So we don't really know the answer to if you're in range, you know, how likely it is that you that you'll find people who need thyroid hormone or benefit from thyroid hormone. We don't have that data. We do definitely know that TSH, which is our main marker for thyroid function, and TSH is a pituitary hormone. So the pituitary gland, which is our master gland, makes TSH. And TSH stimulates the thyroid gland to make thyroid hormones, T4 and T3. I think of TSH as the thermostat of the house. So think of your thyroid as the house, TSH is your thermostat. If the house is cold, your thyroid is not making enough thyroid hormone, the thermostat goes up. So TSH goes up. So a high TSH is usually an indicator of thyroid dysfunction. And we use that because of the relationship between thyroid hormones and TSH. There is this relationship that makes whenever you have a very small change in your thyroid hormone from the thyroid gland, it's going to make a high, a big change in your TSH. So it's going to be reflecting a much larger change. Mm. So when you look at the reference range for TSH, most labs will give you a 0 0.45 to 4.5. That's your range. That's a reference range. And I call it reference, not normal. If you look at what we think is ideal, probably up to 2.5 for TSH is ideal. All right. So 0 0.45 to 2.5 is what we think is ideal. If you start to see a TSH that is over 2 or for 2.5, that may be an indicator that something is about to happen or could happen or is likely to happen. You don't know when, but it could happen. We definitely are much more strict with that TSH when a woman is uh, trying to get pregnant. We definitely don't want that TSH to be anywhere above 2.5, sometimes not even above 2. Okay. So when you look at a reference range, you say, I'm, I'm in range. My question is always, are you really in, are you optimal for TSH? Or are you in range, but not really optimal? Are you 3.5? Are you 4? I don't think that's really optimal. I think people who have a TSH of 4 actually may have symptoms. So it's, it's good to keep in mind, where exactly are you? Just being 
normal doesn't mean that you truly are normal. And that would have been also my first question with both Arden and, and Kelly, yeah. you know, when they were when they were uh, diagnosed. So try to think of it as the reference range, which just means where most people fall when they're tested, and an optimal range, which is more indicative of where your body's going to do well. Yeah, and if you if you um, if I give you a bit of the background of how that reference range was, you know, came about, you'll you'll see exactly what you're saying. They, that data comes from a big, large study in the U.S. where they took a lot of you know people in the U.S. and they just asked them, do you have thyroid disease? No? Okay, you get tested. Do you have thyroid disease? No? You get tested. So they tested everybody, and that's what they came up with that range, 0.45 to 4.5. Then they said, okay, let's test people who have antibodies, these thyroid antibodies. Mm-hmm. All right, let's remove those from now our range. When they did that, the range went from 0.5 to 2.5. That's where the range comes from. So if you don't have antibodies, you have a TSA that is usually more in range than if you have antibodies because you probably have already developed mild thyroid disease. So the, the progression of thyroid disease is that you develop first the O immunity. You have the antibodies or the look of the thyroid disease, maybe in an ultrasound. Over time, that develops into having a higher TSH, maybe still within range, but higher. And then over time, the TSH gets above range and that's when you usually get diagnosed and treated. Hey, you said um, that it's very important while you're pregnant. Can you give me why that is? Yeah. So um, first for um, conception. So to get pregnant, you need a good TSH. Women with higher TSH um, will usually have, uh, they're, they're not able to make enough progesterone, which is actually what helps, you know, keep the baby um, or, or, you know, hold it to the baby. Mm-hmm. But there's also a higher risk. There's a higher risk of miscarriage. There's also a higher risk of uh, complications later in pregnancy, whether there's preeclampsia or other. There are complications in pregnancy when the TSH is high. So yeah. Okay. So there's a question here that I think leans into what I said earlier about just soldiering on. And the question is, what are the health implications of poorly managed thyroid disease? And uh, this person says it would also be great to get an explanation of the different types of hypothyroidism, which obviously we've covered already. So um, what are the implications of just ignoring this? Yeah, so I don't think it's good to ignore it. Um, We definitely have now sets of levels of TSH to what we think is actually dangerous to ignore it. So if you're over seven, don't ignore it. And you're young. And young, I mean, younger than 65. So younger than 65, TSH over seven, that increases your risk for stroke and heart disease. As simple as that. So if you are, um, and like I said before, you know, TSH affects um, fertility. It affects women's cycles. Women probably tend to have cycles that are a bit heavier when the TSH is higher. Um, But definitely heart heart is is a big one. High TSH usually also affects insulin resistance. The, the higher TSH, the more insulin resistance you are. And that's also been shown now with a TSH, again, that is in that reference range, but it's at the high end of the reference range. Because again, we know that that's not really an optimal TSH. Okay. It's been linked to insulin resistance. It's been linked to fatty liver, which is quite common in the population as well. Fatty liver is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if the TSH is too high, then I could see insulin resistance. And that's, especially for this population, it makes everything more difficult again. There's right. another question here that's interesting. Most of it's been answered already, but at the very end, uh, this person says that my daughter has T1D and celiac. I have T1D and hypothyroidism. Um, but the last part of their question is where I, I, I want to ask the question. And she says, did one cause the other? 
And I know that one doesn't cause the other. I know that you already said that that autoimmune diseases kind of, you know, cluster together. Cluster. But it's yeah. such a common question for people. People yeah. have such an anecdotal relationship with what they see. Like I got this and then this happened. So this must have caused that. Um that's not the case though, right? No. The uh there have been a concern and there have been actually some initial research into whether uh celiac actually could cause autoimmune thyroid disease. And the thought was, could people with celiac disease not absorb selenium? And then we talked before, selenium modulates thyroid. Could it be that when you have celiac, you don't have enough selenium and then selenium causes autoimmune thyroid? It's never really been explored further than that initial sort of question study. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's really interesting, right? Um, is it celiac, you know, somebody has a question as well on leaky gut. And if you think of, um, you know, what leaky gut represents, basically, if you think of cells in the gut, the cells are tight to each other, right? They're next to each other. There are these tight junctions between the cells. And when you absorb nutrients in your gut from the gut into the bloodstream, they don't get absorbed in between the cells. They get absorbed through the cells. Now, imagine that those cells are not tightly together. They're separated. There's a gap between the cells. That's leaky gut. That's just your cells have a gap in between them. So things that were not able to come through the cells, not coming between the cells, things meaning proteins or other anything that you're you're taking in, those trigger a reaction in the body that is an inflammatory reaction. And those is where the idea of molecular mimicry comes in, meaning there are things that can look like other things that your body will react against. So something comes into through the gut. In the body thinks that it's to be something foreign, attacks it, and in the process of doing that, it's creating these antibodies that then attack your thyroid and other organs. That's the idea of molecular mimicry and leaky gut. Could it be that celiac does something like it? We don't know that. Is it a possibility? Sure, it could be. We, we just don't know enough. That's fascinating that the chain of events feels mm-hmm. like it's so far away from the thyroid, you, you know. Um, right. But the one thing creates the antibodies, the antibodies then go do the wrong thing. Oh, that's fascinating. Our, our bodies are uh, uh, amazing and uh, screwy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not, right? Or, and so the idea really is, if you're more, listen, if you have autoimmune issues, you're not going to stop them most likely, but there is hopefully a way to tame them or to draw them more into in the line just to give yourself better outcomes and not just think because i think that happens a lot you know to people who you know for instance don't listen to the podcast who have type 1 diabetes they do this thing i talk about all the time i'm always telling people please don't just say oh that's just diabetes oh my blood mm-hmm. sugar just goes to 350 and stays there for a few hours this is what happens i have type 1 diabetes i'm like no that's not what happens like you didn't use the insulin correctly. We can stop that, you know, but it becomes, again, it happens over and over and it makes them feel like, well, this is just part of it. So if you have these thyroid issues, yes, you're going to run into a lack of understanding very likely at your doctor. And there may be more for you to do um, to, uh, to, to get through the process. What I'm thinking as we're talking is that, um, I'm going to bug you for like a checklist for people to take with them, like, like talking points checklist or something mm-hmm. like that to, to put um, along with this, because that really is my concern. Like we can educate people as much as we want, but if they hit a firewall at their physician, none of this is going to matter. You, you know, yeah, understand, so, they're just yeah. going to understand what's wrong. It's not going to help them fix it. 
Yeah, I so my my thought process and this is not just the way I work, but this is actually from guidelines by the European Thyroid Association. They talk about how when somebody has, um, let's say somebody has a perfectly normal TSH, they're being treated with thyroid hormone, they have a perfectly normal TSH, but you don't feel well. So now what, right? What do you do with that? So first, I think you have to make sure that your TSH is truly in range, that you're really in that, you know, one to two, maybe up to 2.5. You're really within the optimal range. In spite of that, we do know that patients with thyroid disease, up to 15% of patients who have a perfectly normal TSH will not feel well. Um, and they still have some, especially neurocognitive deficits. So what's next? So first, look for other other things that can actually come along with thyroid that could be causing the symptoms. And the first one I will look for will be iron and B12. And you could ask your doctors, could this be an iron and a B12 deficiency? Could I have anything like that? I know that they're more likely in people with thyroid disease and oleumian thyroid. Could I have that? Um, and that's a blood test. You can check like you did, Scott, your ferritin, and you could also check a B12 level. That's pretty easy. Then you could ask, could this be that you, I have another autoimmune condition? And again, celiac can be silent. You may not have any symptoms of celiac. You know, as a kid, you might not grow up. As an adult, you might not have any symptoms. Same with autoimmune gastritis. You may have no symptoms except the lack of absorption of certain minerals and vitamins. So it's always worthwhile asking your doctor, could this be a different autoimmune I know that I'm at risk for autoimmune conditions. Should I be checked for celiac or autoimmune gastritis or something else? And then I will go back. If all those have been checked and you have no other autoimmune, your iron is perfectly fine. And I like to talk a bit about iron in a little bit. Um, then the question is, could you be somebody who, in addition to taking levothyroxine, which is the standard of care uh, for hypothyroidism, should you be treated with liothyronine T3? Is that, is that a role for T3? In general, guidelines um, from many societies do not recommend using T3. However, there is a little spot in, one, in a task force by the American Thyroid Association where they say that an individual case-to-case -case basis for T3 could be, um, um, in, not, maybe not encouraged, but could be thought of, let's say. So some of the, there was perhaps a discussion within the group that went in the task force and some of the people in the task force writing these guidelines really thought that if you're not feeling well and everything has been looked at, you could consider taking T3. Now, T3 is the active hormone in thyroid. So your body, our bodies make T4, our thyroid make T4 a little bit of T3, mostly T4, and then T4, which is again levothyroxine in pills, if you wish, sort of the equivalent. T4 gets converted to T3 in the cells. T3 is what gives you your actual energy. So we don't understand exactly why, but there are certainly people with thyroid disease, with hypothyroidism, who in spite of taking T4, in spite of having normal levels, do not feel well. And a subset of those people feel better when they take T3 along with T4. So you could then ask the question, am I a candidate for T3? Could this be something that we could explore? Could I add some T3 to my T4? Could I just take some T3, maybe a little bit less T4, just to make room for the T3? It's always a consideration. If you're somebody who's pregnant, I would, I would not recommend that. The baby's brain needs T4, and it's a bit uh, sort of partially impermeable to T3. So if you're pregnant or trying to get pregnant, I would not recommend T3. But if you're somebody who has 
cardiac arrhythmias, meaning your heart goes into an irregular heartbeat, especially when you go fast. T3 is not recommended because T3 is going to make those more likely to come back and to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in spite of, in, when you don't have those, it's something that you could think of asking your doctor. And for perspective, T3 works for my wife, but didn't work for mm -hmm. my daughter. So That's exactly right. Yeah. And it's a it's completely an individualized approach. It's not really based on blood tests. So I can check somebody's T3 level before I give them T3, and they have a perfectly normal T3. So it's a T3 level doesn't tell me somebody needs it, doesn't need it. T3 is actually inside your cells. So you really don't get to measure that. It's more of a clinical decision, and it's, it's almost like a trial, basically, is what you have to do. As you're explaining it, and I see how detailed it is, and I have to be honest with you, I've had this conversation for years now around my wife, around my daughter, here today. I still think if you gave me a quiz about T3 and T4 and what's making what and what my I think I'd get maybe like 70% of it right. And, 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 and I do wonder if that's not part of the issue at the physician side and especially because endocrinology is interesting, right? Like it's such a blanket, you know, they, they, they do so much. Like how do you be, uh, you know, a, a thought leader on this one tiny piece of it? Um, mm -hmm. I, I can see that. And for the people listening, it's confusing, you know, TSH, yeah. T3, T4, I know. thyroid, I know. goiter. Like I know. You're like, wow, there's a lot of lingo. There's a lot of like, you know, and it, it can be overwhelming yeah. a little bit. And, and especially yeah. in a society, like, let's be honest, we're a light switch society. We want a pill. <laughs> we want the pill to go in. We want everything to be done. And that should be that, you know? So, uh, having to put in the work, I think is incredibly valuable. I'll, I'll tell you that I'm so passionate about this because I see the other side of it. Like I know what happens to my wife and what happens to my daughter if they're not managed well with this. And it really is, mm -hmm. it's a dampening of their life. Like it, it really, it really is. It takes significantly away from them. Um, and so I think perhaps they, yeah, sorry. No. The message is to say, don't give up. You know, yeah. if you're not feeling well, you know, fight for what you think you know you know how to feel well is if you're not feeling well nobody's going to be in your body to know if you're feeling well or not but if you if you don't feel well keep at it yeah. so if it's not one condition it could be another and if it's not that then you know go back and say could i be managed differently in the way that i've been treated yeah don't give up but look for information in different places mm -hmm. um and and i will i will say this there is a thing that happens when you haven't felt well for so long, you do forget a little about what well yeah. is. Because I have to say that when someone gave me an iron infusion and I could feel its full effects, which takes a little bit of time because your red blood right. cells have to pick it up and remake yeah. cells again with sufficient iron. It takes a little while. It's then hard to remember how bad you felt. It's so interesting <laughs> how resilient we are. You, you know what I mean? Like, you, you, yes. you, it's hard to go apples and like, I know I was tired. I know I would run up the steps and be out of breath, which was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But that's how bad my low iron was. Like, I, if I ascended wow. the stairs, I couldn't talk on the phone at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, you know. But yeah. So I want to talk about, about, about that a little bit. You know, when most people talk about iron, they'll talk about, um, or your doctors talk about iron, talk about red cell count. It's not what you and I are talking about. We're talking about ferritin. And ferritin is how your body stores iron. So the average ferritin in U.S. women is 22. Now, I'll tell you, adolescent girls who have levels less than 35 pass out. There's definitely data on that. And we think, based on one study, that for women, a level of 50, 50, is perhaps optimal for energy. 
if you're looking for hair growth, that's about 70 to 80 for ferritin. And again, I'm telling you, average women are around 22. That's the average because we menstruate, because we, you know, as children, we grow, then we menstruate, then we have kids and all that takes iron. Yeah. Yeah. Women's bodies are, um, they get used up by, by life mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't get replenished all the time. Um, yeah. And I don't know if that's some nature plan or anything, but I call bullshit <laughs> on that. <laughs> yeah, like, you don't have to walk around tired and like oh, I had a bunch of kids. It's okay. It's not okay. Right. You know, like no, I agree. Do something agree. for yourself. Help help out. Yeah. Medicine has improved. Mm -hmm. You should you should take advantage of it. I it changed my life getting an iron infusion, and it gave I think me it changed a lot of my patients' lives. Yeah. I've I've definitely seen a lot of my patients for iron infusions uh, when I cannot get their iron up or they're really really low in iron. My um, my I personality definitely... goes. It, it it's not pleasant as my iron gets lower. I lose my ability to, um, uh, I don't know. I'm not measured anymore. Everything either makes me upset or sad or like, I, I just, it's fascinating to watch how I devolve when it goes down. I, I, I find it really fascinating. If you think of all the things that lack of iron can do. So for women, lack of iron is actually more linked to PMS, premenstrual syndrome. Um, lack of iron is definitely associated with depression. Um, lack of iron associated with low libido in, in women. Yeah. Um, you know, lack of iron can really cause muscle, the muscles not to feel right. You know, somebody who's running and just starts to get tired like you did. You know, you're going up the stairs and be short of breath, yeah. uh, passing out, feeling lightheaded. You know, all those things um, are due to lack of iron. Yeah. It's really important. No kidding. I, I'm a, a huge fan of paying attention. Uh, question is, can hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's hide symptoms of a slow or late onset of type one diabetes like Lada, uh, if a type one has started making Hashimoto's antibodies but is not symptomatic, is it just a waiting game at that point? So definitely type one diabetes and Hashimoto's are linked through these uh, same genes. Um, again, Hashimoto's, um, uh, if you don't have, if you're not hypothyroid, I don't think Hashimoto's by itself is going to affect your glucose metabolism. But having hypothyroidism definitely can affect your glucose metabolism. You know, just think of, if you think of hypo as being low, just think of a low metabolism. So you're going to absorb things more slowly. You're going to not be able to clear medications as fast from your body. Um, so all that is going to play a role into how your sugars are going to get um, affected, basically. LADA is, is actually thought of a risk factor for Hashimoto's. They don't seem to have the same genes. It's more of a risk factor. It's a little bit different than actually, even when it's close to type 1, it's not exactly type 1. The genes don't seem to be the same. And again, we talked before, the, the waiting game is, yes, a 50% chance of developing thyroid disease if you are type 1. If you have type one diabetes. So this next question is interesting um, because I think we covered some of it, but not the whole thing. The question is my son's blood work shows he has the markers. So the endo has put him on a low dose of thyroid. Is this a protocol because he has no symptoms? So we've talked about if your if your range is quote unquote good, but you have symptoms, yes, you need it. But what about if you don't have symptoms? but you have the markers. Right. So maybe that, and again, that I, would, I would like to go back and take a look at that TSH. Was that TSH at the high end of normal? Um, does that person have actually a goiter, a large thyroid gland? That actually is an indication to treat even without symptoms. If somebody has antibodies and they have an enlarged thyroid gland, 
there's an indication to treat okay. even without symptoms. Um, and that's at that point we're thinking that the body is really trying to push to work too hard. Mm-hmm. What, what do you um, recommend? Like once people get their medication set up, what's the maintenance for? Because this person asks, is it good enough to just test my TSH every year or should I be doing other things? Right. So guidelines are that you check once a year. I'm a little bit more OCD and I'll check people twice a year. Um, I still see them in my office once a year, you know, when we can meet in person, but I'll check them twice a year. And I have a very low threshold. I do tell them if you feel different and I just say that different than what you normally feel and it doesn't go away. Just have, have a low threshold. We'll check your levels. I also tell them if you're taking a new medication or a new supplement, I want you to tell me what you're going to be taking so that I know there are certain medications that can actually interfere with it, either the absorption or the metabolism of thyroid hormone. So that we can, even a birth control pill can actually affect, you know, how much thyroid hormone you need. So there are things that, that we know can have an, an, an interaction or an, an effect on thyroid. So I want to know about them so that we can, you know, be more, um, you know, proactive about them. Yeah. Well, I, I think that one of the most amazing things about working with you is, is that there's no, there's only enough pausing to see what works. So it's, mm-hmm. it's get a blood test, find out where we are, add the medication, wait an appropriate amount of time, which is usually just about 30 days, blood test again, keep moving. Like that is such right. a valuable perspective on it. And yeah. And if you know that levothyroxine, which is what standard of care is, takes about six weeks to take an effect. That's all you're going to, you know, that's, that's all you have to wait. If you're changing your dose or something is uh, introduced, just six weeks doesn't take that long. Yeah. No. Uh, it, and actually, interestingly enough, COVID making people's um, connections more instantaneous, right? Not having to wait for you know, as long for an appointment, right. know, being able to get in and out of conversations. I actually think and there's a couple of things that are going to come from all of this that's good. And I think this is one of them. Doctors seeing people like this, I think, is going to speed people up to resolutions um, because it gives them uh, the access at the at the intervals that I think are more necessary. So mm-hmm. I, I definitely found that. Yeah. This one's interesting. Do people tell you not to eat soy sauce if you have? Oh, that's a good question. Is it? So. You, 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 so a few things on soy. One is if you take thyroid hormone, if you take levothyroxine, whether generic or brand, and we talk about that as well, generic and brand, you should not take your thyroid hormone at the same time as taking soy. Soy does um, affect the absorption of thyroid hormone. So not at the same time. If you already take thyroid hormone, you can take, you can have your miso soup or your tofu or, you know, at a different time. That's perfectly fine. There have been many studies on soy and thyroid. The initial concern was actually on uh, babies who were uh, fed soy um, milk, um, you know, when they were infants, I guess. And soy actually is, um, if you don't have enough iodine, it's actually going to affect thyroid function. So, but if you have enough iodine, soy will not cause any problem with the thyroid. There has been only one study where they use quite a bit of, of soy. So there were people having soy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Those people had um, an under, a, a mildly underactive thyroid. They became much more underactive after eating a lot of soy. And again, it was soy breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It was a lot of soy, oh, wow. right? So if you're somebody who has a mild dysfunction in your thyroid, you're trying to avoid taking thyroid hormone, you really want to try to do this naturally and more yourself, don't overdo it on soy, is what I would say. Okay. That's interesting. So like, I can't, mm-hmm. like, I don't want to... Well, let's talk about the medication for a second, because you just alluded to something that we found. Um, Synthroid works fine for my wife. The generic Synthroid 
doesn't touch her at all for some reason. Um, we've bounced through multiple medications for Arden, just looking to see if she had a, an interaction with one of them, which she didn't end up having. But she now takes Tyrosin, which is, I think, has no fi- the even. I don't think mm-hmm. Synthroid yeah. has that many fillers, but Tyrosin has none of them. Nothing. Like, yeah. So you know, do you see that first of all between generic and non-generic? Right. So generic, it's levothyroxine. And the concern with generics, if I write a prescription for generic, just for, if I just write levothyroxine, the pharmacist will give you what they have in stock, which means that the first time you fill it is generic A, then the next time could be generic B, and the next time is generic C. Each one of the generics gets absorbed differently. So from going from A to B to C, your levels are going to change just because you're absorbed differently. Same is true of brands. If you go on scene for the first month and then the voxel the second time and then unit for the third month, that's also going to change. So if we write brand like Synthroid, let's say, the pharmacy will honor that and they always give you Synthroid. Now I have a way, sometimes somebody has a hard time paying for medication from brand, I'll write levothyroxine by X and my X will be, let's say, myelin, which I like because it's gluten-free and lactose-free. So what I tell my patients is, you know, just like, you know, be an advocate, right? So thyroid hormone pills, tablets, are color-coded and shape-coded. The color tells you the dose. Every single 50 microgram pill is white. Every single 100 is yellow. 112 is pink. 137 is brown. You know, they all have a color. That's the dose. Doesn't matter what the brand is. Doesn't matter what the generic is. The color tells you the dose. Now, the shape tells you who makes it. So Synthroid is always round. Levoxyl is almost like a thyroid shape, something like a butterfly type thing. Um, you know, so if you go to the pharmacy and now you pick your pills and last month they were white and round and now they are purple and oval, they give you a different dose and a different manufacturer. And that's how you know. And if your doctor didn't tell you they were changing it, you better call back your pharmacist and your doctor and tell them they give me something that I was not supposed to be taking. That is rock solid real life advice. I I did not realize. So maybe Kelly's issue back then when she was using uh, generic wasn't so much that generic wouldn't work for her, it was that she was maybe getting something different every time, so there was no consistency. Right, and some generics will have gluten or lactose, which many patients with Hashimoto's are also, if not celiac fully, they might be intolerant. There's more likelihood of being intolerant to gluten and to lactose when you have Hashimoto's and when you don't have Hashimoto's. So there's a question here that I feel like has been answered, but the second part of it, again, is valuable uh, to still bring up. It sounds like this person has a doctor who tells them that you should try to get off of all medications, which obviously, if you need this hormone, you need it. Right. But it does beg the question, if you're, are there safe ways to titrate up, titrate down? Are there there Mm -hmm. ways to take medication that, that this medication that's you can't like, can I just pop them in or do like, how does that work? Like if you're moving up in a dose or switching from one to the other. Right. So usually when we need to change somebody's dose because their thyroid levels are not right, they're not optimal. Usually we go one level up and one level means about 12.5 micrograms up. And that most of your, your thyroid medications have those levels, most, not all. So for instance, you have 75, you have 88, you have hundred, you have 112, 125. 137, 150. So you're usually go about in 12.5, 13 microgram increments. 50 to 75, there's no nothing in between. 50 to 25, you know, going down, there's nothing in between. So there are a couple of that have nothing in between, but usually one level up is 12.5 micrograms. And that's usually how we go up. Unless somebody started, that was a really, really off and you had to go up quite a bit. 
thyroid hormone levothyroxine is long acting. Um, meaning if you miss one pill one day, take two the next day. That's perfectly fine. It's not a problem. You go away for the weekend, you forgot your pills. When you come back, make up what you missed. So make up your Saturday and your Sunday. That's not a problem. Let's say somebody is, has been given thyroid hormone and they want to see whether, because the thyroid levels were off, and they want to see if they actually need it and can they come off it. So if you have been taking thyroid hormone and you suddenly stop it, your thyroid levels are going to rebound. You're actually going to have a high TSH. And that's just a normal physiologic effect. Even if you don't need it, your body's going to do that. So it's going to bump up your TSH. So instead of getting off abruptly, what I have people do is I actually have them take one pill less per week. So one day a week, they miss their pill. They'll do that for about two months. I'll test them. I'll see what the TSH is. If they're still in range, I'll say, okay, take one pill away again. And now they're missing two pills per week. Two months later, we'll do the same thing. So a very slow process, but it really works. And it tells me what's the dose you need, if you need it, or can you actually be without it? So, and that's particularly true because sometimes when you have a high TSH, it doesn't always mean you have a thyroid disease. High TSH could happen because you are sick, could be thyroiditis, not the chronic that is Hashimoto's, but subacute. So something that actually is caused by a virus that causes your TSH to go high for a couple of months and then your TSH will go back to normal. But if somebody gets given thyroid hormone at that point, then do you still need it two months later or could you actually come off it? Can we talk about that for a second? Because I think you believe that happened to Arden this year, right? Yes. Right. So she gets yep. some sort of a virus. Um, she fights it off. But then she starts having uh, real impactful thyroid like issues. Um, and as we tracked them, medication wasn't the answer. Not that time was the answer, right? Yeah. Yep. So is yeah. that what people call a thyroid storm? Is that uh, no. no. So thyroid storm is different? what happens when you have Graves' disease and suddenly your thyroid releases a lot of the thyroid hormone that you've had in storage. That happens on Graves' that is not treated, okay. which is why Graves' disease should always be treated. You know, we talked before about when you treat, when you have hypothyroidism, Graves' disease in my mind should always be treated because thyroid storms are, um, they can really, you can end up dead. Wow. with a thyroid storm okay. so to prevent that so that's different that's but different. thyroiditis mm -hmm. which is what we call um this will be a subacute thyroiditis meaning subacute means that it, it lasts um for a short time they're usually painless meaning you don't have any pain in your thyroid a virus happens about two months prior a cold flu something usually it's a cold like virus about two months before and then suddenly your body starts to release a lot of the thyroid hormone has been stored. So it's just a, a lot of releasing. Your thyroid is not making more thyroid hormone, it's releasing what has been stored, and it releases a lot of it at once. Mm -hmm. That makes the person hyperthyroid because the thyroid gland has only about two months storage of thyroid hormone. Once the thyroid has released everything that's in storage, now the thyroid goes hypothyroid, and then the body sort of kicks in and regulates itself, and you normally usually go back to normal. Sometimes people actually end up a bit hypothyroid after that happens. So it's usually hyper, hypo, normal, sometimes a bit hypo. Yeah. That's a typical pattern. That's interesting. And that can that not happen to people who don't have thyroid disease? Is that not yes. something? Yep. So if I don't have thyroid disease, I would never see any of this happen. No, actually, sorry. You can still have it if you don't have thyroid disease. Oh, yep. it could happen still. Okay. Mm -hmm. It and could it, happen. It's fascinating, too, because like you said, it's months of one direction and then it swing back the other way and then a leveling eventually. 
Um, and I don't know why, but I've seen a lot of those cases this year. I have to say, I don't usually see as many cases. I've had many, many, many of my patients have actually had that happen to them this year, where they became hyperthyroid, and then we waited two more months. I mean, we you know adjusted their thyroid dose so they would not be as hyperthyroid, and we had to readjust back because they were getting hypothyroid. It's no been um, interesting. Hmm. That is, yeah. Are you inferring COVID or no? No, and those no. people actually were testing. Many of them did not have COVID. So is it stress that we know can affect thyroid? Did the stress affect the immune system and then affect was another virus that was happening at the same time as COVID? I, I really don't have an answer. No kidding. Yeah, because we did check Arden for COVID too during this whole process mm-hmm. and she's mm-hmm. never had it. So right. really, uh, wow. Um, you talked about leaky gut earlier and this person's yeah. asking... Does healing leaky gut help thyroid symptoms? Which I think the question, the answer there is pretty clearly yes. But how do you go about that? And what kind of a doctor do you see? And how do you even know that's happening? Yeah, so um, I would say that's still not into the, um, you know, completely accepted by uh, more of the Western medicine, if you wish. So probably a functional medicine provider is the one that will test for leaky gut. There are some blood tests that can um, help that are sometimes uh, stool tests that will do it, but it's not a routine test. You can go to a lab or a quest and, you know, or a hospital and get tested for. I think, um, that, let me jump in for a second. I think what I learned by watching you help the girls was that doctors in a Western situation, they look for results, numbers that tell them for sure this is a thing. What I watched you do was test a bunch of different stuff and then use your knowledge to infer a little bit from it. Yeah. Is that fair? It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. And so you're looking. Yeah. And for sometimes I will not treat, I will not die. I will not make the, the testing for the leaky gut, but I will say, you know, could this be leaky gut? And in the way I think of leaky gut, sometimes that if you start to have reactions to almost anything that you're, you're either eating or taking, that to me suggests pretty strongly leaky gut because it means that things are just coming into your body and your body's reacting against them. Why would your body do that? It shouldn't do that normally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are, you know, stress can trigger leaky gut, infections can trigger leaky gut. So if you have any of those, a history of having had significant stress in your life um, or just a recent gut infection, then I'm going to be more suspicious of leaky gut. There's, um, you know, people will use even bone broth actually can be very nut- uh, nutritive for leaky gut that um, there are some uh, some of the the proteins in the in the bone broth actually help with leaky gut glutamine is one of the big ones for leaky gut um, interestingly there's one herb that is used for leaky gut called it's not an herb it's a it's a it's a it's an isoquinoline alkaloid that comes from plant and it's called berberine berberine comes from golden seal and chinese coptis and ras- um, um, not raspberry um, i'm blocking the name of the other one but anyway, berberine is uh, is this chemical that has been shown to help leaky gut, but it also has data actually for Hashimoto's. The data actually is not in um, in clinical, so that they were not doing the study to see whether your symptoms got better. They did studies in cells, so it's only cell studies, so like what we call you know petri dish, if you will, studies. But it's interesting that that same compound helps both Hashimoto's and leaky gut. And you, you know, the question is, could this be because you're helping leaky gut, are you helping in the Hashimoto's? Unclear. But it's a, you know, it's definitely a question that is worth exploring um, in the future. Wow. Okay. Um, I feel like we've done a lot. Did, did we mm-hmm. miss anything that you're like thinking, oh, how did we not talk about this one thing? All right. So I'm going to go back a little bit to the uh, generic versus brand versus terrorism. Okay. Just want to make a mention on that. So um, again, 
again, we talk about generics and how as long as you send the same generic, that may not be so much of an issue as long as you're okay with all the fillers and the colors. Yeah. Um, again, white doesn't give you a color, so usually whites are easy. Tyrosin is sort of the newest levothyroxine on the market. And tyrosin is beautiful because it's a capsule. And it means that by being a capsule, doesn't need stomach acid to be absorbed. So um, it also has the fewest ingredients. It has gelatin and water. So as long as you're okay with gelatin, um, then you could take tyrosin. Tyrosin is usually not covered by insurance companies unless you failed levothyroxine or if you have gut issues that don't allow you to make enough stomach acid. So my patients with celiac disease, I put them on tyrosin. My patients with autoimmune gastritis, when they don't have enough stomach acid, I put them on tyrosin. Um, even if you're taking one of those proton pump inhibitors or meprazole, prilosec, one of those, those actually block your stomach acid. Tyrosin is the, is the way to go. Otherwise, your, your absorption is too erratic. I'm going to say that I have even patients who, if I can get tyrosin approved, they'll feel a ton better on tyrosin than they felt on levothyroxine. Perhaps because of the absorption difference, perhaps because they don't have as many fillers. Okay. And what about just the taking of the medication? Because you, you, it's a, I mean, mm-hmm. we've talked about a lot of like down deep ideas today, and this is a really basic one, but I see people ask all the time does it need to be the same time of day? Should it absolutely be without food? How long before? If so, all that stuff. Okay. So the ideal is that you take them around the same time every day, around. Mm-hmm. Um, so morning, afternoon, or evening. Ideally, the the thought is that you take it about 30 minutes before breakfast. And that's because if you have food with it, it's going to decrease the absorption a little bit. Um, There's a recent study where they looked at whether you took your thyroid hormone half an hour before breakfast, an hour before your main meal, or three hours after dinner. Most of those were very similar. The best time was actually before breakfast. Then um, three hours after dinner, and then the one hour before your meal. Um, you know, when I trained, my mentor would say to the patients who were taking thyroid hormone, do whatever you do, get a rhythm, we'll adjust your thyroid hormone. Meaning, if you take your levothyroxine, your synthroid with breakfast, what you might mean is that I might need to give you a bit of a higher dose to compensate for your thyroid hormone being sort of bound to that to what you're eating. Mm-hmm. If you're eating about the same thing every breakfast, your levels will get, you know, will even out. Um, if you're eating different things, it might be a difference. So what I usually tell my patients that don't have it with something that has a lot of fiber. If you have a high fiber breakfast, if you have a smoothie with a fiber supplement, that's really going to bind your thyroid hormone. Don't do that. Right. Um, so if you're having that type of breakfast, definitely do it half an hour before your breakfast. Again, if you miss one pill, take two the next day. The things that really are a no-no for thyroid hormone when you take it is any minerals. You cannot take thyroid hormone with magnesium or with iron or calcium. They're going to bind your thyroid hormone. They're not going to let it get absorbed. Those have to be separated about three hours, even chromium. Some people take chromium mm-hmm. for, you know, especially in type 2 diabetes um, or insulin resistance. So those have to be three hours away from your thyroid hormone so that you have enough time to let the thyroid hormone be absorbed and then put the minerals in the, in the gut. Could I have it in the morning with my vitamins? Like, or, or is it just those things you just mentioned? I shouldn't mix them with. I could have it. Exactly. With yeah. Vitamin B, vitamin, um, you know, B12 or D, they don't, uh, you know, I always have people look on the bottle and make sure that there's nothing else in, in that, uh, that there's no D with calcium, or there's not a B12 with a, 
a prebiotic that is fiber-based, you know, something like that. Just take a look at the bottle, make sure there's nothing else. What about birth control pills? You can take them at the same time. So the effect of the birth control pill on thyroid is not really because they bind in the stomach. It's actually a binding issue, but with the proteins. So um, our bodies make these, what we call thyroid binding globulins. They're proteins that help you carry the thyroid hormone throughout the blood into the cells. Mm -hmm. So when you take a birth control pill, or when women take a birth control pill, the thyroid binding globulin goes up. So now you have more of these proteins binding to the thyroid hormone. So let's say that your body is taking a certain amount of thyroid hormone. You're gonna, if you take a birth control pill, you have now more of those binding proteins. You have less free hormone available to you, which is why if you were not taking a birth control pill and suddenly you go on a birth control pill, you might need a higher dose of your thyroid hormone. Because with the same amount, now you're binding more, you have less free. This is probably a good time to tell you that Arden might need a blood test in a month then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. That's what I always tell people. It might not affect it, but it, just to make sure, give it four to six weeks, check your thyroid levels. If you need an increase, we'll do it. Because, so the one thing that Arden also has, by the way, we joke about it all the time on the podcast, so don't feel weird about this. I know it's <laughs> kind of a strange intersection because you're helping Arden too, but um uh, we always joke that the whole world knows about Arden's um, menstrual cycle, <laughs> but uh, so Arden gets her her period too frequently. It'll sometimes mm -hmm. come twice in a month, or it'll last a long time, so long that it feels like the next time it came is twice in a month. So we did just start on Monday with the first day of her cycle of a, a, a low lestrin, the very very low mm -hmm. dose of a mm -hmm. birth control pill. And we're treating it the same way as everything else. We're going to try it and see if it brings yeah. her any kind of relief. And if it does, great. If it doesn't, she'll stop taking it. But Yeah, at least it will help her iron. You know, if she's not bleeding as often or as, or as much, yeah. she will, you know, her iron will stay up a little bit more than, you know, just always being, you know, consumed. Right. So, again, we're just, we're taking it very small pieces at a time. Even, you know, you've suggested Arden see a rheumatologist, which we're, I, I, I meant to get back to you actually it's odd but it's not as easy as you would think for a younger person um wow. like you know i'm having trouble finding a doctor that wants to help somebody under 18 it's very wow. it's, it's very interesting and you know for things like like this morning arden woke up she's in the middle of her period she's like my ankle hurts my knee hurts like you know can you just my but it's not both of her it's not both of her legs it's one of them hmm. you know so you just it's I'll tell you, I have to tell you, like, aside of all the great information that you shared with everybody today that I, I really want to thank you for, the part that nobody can make you ready for is that horrible feeling like you're not finding the answer and that yeah. every day you're thinking about this stuff and that not finding the answer is leaving somebody at one or multiple different deficits in their life. And, um, I try really hard because, you know, she's my daughter. I don't know if I would try this hard for myself. I have to be honest. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. But I've got a few more years with her and it's my goal to set her on the best path possible for when I'm assuming she leaves here. Never talks. And, and just think that with Arden, you know, because we know that she had this iron deficiency. If she's having her cycle, she's going to drop iron once she's having her cycle. Um, and that actually by itself can actually cause her to have some pain. Usually it's more muscle than joint, mm -hmm. but, um, I wouldn't put it past it, that it could be, um, an iron deficiency. Well, I actually have come to the conclusion now that I've seen my body pick the iron up with the exorbic acid, I'm going to start her on mm -hmm. maybe just once a week and then twice, and then we'll check her again and see, you know, yeah. where she gets to, because I think there is a way with the supplements to hold her in that range. Like in my mind, tell me if I'm wrong. 
I'm shooting for that like 70 range where you said hair grows. I would. That, that's... I would. And I think, I think every single woman who's having cycles should take some iron. Yeah. I really think so. I mean, unless you have an iron issue in your own body that your body sort of makes too much iron, mm-hmm. right? If you have that, then don't. But yeah. most people don't have that issue. So you're a woman and you're having cycles, um, you know, have iron. Um, yes, you know, iron can get absorbed easily every other day. You don't have to take it every day. It also allows your gut not to get so you know, constipated with it, if you wish. Um, and yeah, using vitamin C or something acidic, um, something with vitamin C will help you um, absorb the iron better. Well, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I um, I have to tell you that the idea of you being on is the most excited I've seen the people online for a while. Um, <laughs> and I knew how good you were. So I've been super excited to do it. I've been very worried that I was going to screw this up, but I feel like I did. All right. So, um, uh, well, I don't think you screwed up. I hope that we answered people's questions. Um, you know, happy to come back. If people have more questions or something we didn't touch upon, I know somebody had asked about nutritional deficiencies. We talked a bit, a little bit about that, you know, how, yeah, definitely iodine can be, you know, it's still the U.S. is iodine sufficient, but until you're vegan and you have no dairy, you could be iodine deficient. And if you do that, you could also be iron deficient. And iodine and iron are both really important for thyroid production. You know, I was going to ask you if you could pick a style of eating and you have thyroid disease, is there one that lends best to it? You know, it's interesting. People have actually looked at that. There's a lot of talk about um, paleo as well as autoimmune paleo. Mm-hmm. Not many studies. There's actually one study was done many years ago using paleo for people who have high TSH and the TSH got better. Now, I don't know if those people actually have thyroid disease or they were just inflamed because inflammation can also cause a high TSH. So paleo, you know, if you take away a lot of your pastas and your processed foods, you're going to lower inflammation. To me, it makes sense that you design for yourself what I would call an anti-inflammatory diet. So one, when you have lots of vegetables, lots of different colors of of the rainbow, mostly because in addition to being anti-inflammatory and each color giving you a different anti-inflammatory compound, they also help you make good gut flora. And if you have good gut flora, it's less like you have leaky gut. Um, in addition to the vegetables, you can use, you know, healthy protein, whatever that protein is for you, whether it's fish, uh, uh, maybe a little bit of chicken, maybe your grass-fed beef, um, um, and then nuts, seeds, um, healthy oils, avocados, things that are very rich in this polyunsaturated fat, so the healthy fats, if you wish, that's also beneficial for us. So and then you figure out what works for you. I think if we're all different and we all have a best way of eating. You know, I don't think burgers and chips and, you know, pasta are a way of eating. Um, I know, so you never eat those, but I don't think it's healthy. Yeah. I've been, I've just started doing a series where people come on and talk about different ways they've eaten. We've had a person come on and talk about carnivore, plant-based. I just interviewed a flexitarian the other day, which, um, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm trying to, as the podcast has grown, it's grown beyond my expectation. So when I was That's first tremendous. doing it, I was like, look, I'll show people how to use insulin so they can have lower, like more stable A1Cs and less variability. And then my, I feel like my responsibility has grown because I, I, I always start with the idea, like I'm a very, um, I, I guess this makes me a capitalist in some way, but, but, uh, <laughs> but the way I think about it is, is there's probably a better way for people to do things, but I don't have the power to influence that. 
So at mm-hmm. its core, I want them to know how to use insulin. So if they decide to eat a cupcake, they can use insulin. If they want to be uh, a vegan, they know how to use their insulin. If they want to eat a carnivore diet, mm-hmm. they understand that protein breaks down and gets picked up as glucose, and they'll need insulin for that. And uh, so as it's been growing, I was like, wow, I, I start feeling that responsibility of like, now I've told them they can do this. Now I should you know, illuminate other ideas. So, um, and thyroid's been one for a while. The way thyroid is talked about is kind of criminal. It, it seriously is like the the lack of understanding that most people or physicians have. Um, it, it breaks my heart. So I'm thrilled you did this. I, I want to ask one last question before I let you go, and I will end up. I will take you up on it and have you back someday for a follow up. Um, but how do I find the you where I live? Do you know what I mean? Like, I know it's easy to say, like, yeah. you know, but but that's not that easy, is it? Is, no. No. <laughs> You're like, no, uh, there's not. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think that you need to find somebody who will tell you about selenium or vitamin D or, you know, vitamin D is so quite common, but, or inositol or ashwagandha. It's not really what you, I, I think the most important part of your journey is, it's not really the supplements. I think it's having somebody who will listen. And who, like you said, even with your thyroid levels not looking off, that will be willing to explore and we're willing to look outside the box and we'll take the journey with you. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we all want is to have somebody who's our partner, who is not just somebody who has a knowledge, but who also is willing to partner with us and trying to figure out what's what's going on. Um, I think you're looking for somebody who's more compassionate and it's going to be word of mouth. It's going to be between the people, either within the podcast or outside of the podcast just knowing what doctors will listen to and, and sit down with you an extra five minutes even just to to get to know you and to get to know what is not right and how can they help you. I have to tell you, I watching you work, I, I have this tiny bit of connection with how the podcast makes me feel because I know right now that I could gather up 10 people who are having no success with their blood sugars and I can fix it. Like, I know how I know how to like, I know how to explain it to them. I know how to put them on the right path. I know how to get them going in the right way, but I only have so much time. And so I use the podcast to try to reach more people. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, um, I I think that somebody who has such good, has so much good knowledge the way you do, you must run into that too. Just the idea of like, you could talk to people all day, but really at what point do you have a life as well? And, um, and how do you help more people? You know, people with type 1 diabetes are really the masters of their own condition, of their own, you know, disease, if you wish. Uh, And really, many times people with type 1 diabetes know more than their doctors know. My mind and anybody, I think that's very clear. Well, I definitely believe that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. That's for sure. (laughs) And I tell people all the time, like, I'm like, what what are you waiting for? You need more basal insulin. And they're like, well, I want to wait to see what the doctor says. I was like, you're looking at it right there. You don't have enough basal insulin. What are we waiting for? You, you know, you don't ask the doctor before you bolus at a meal, but they want to, but they want to, it's, you have to. So I, I think that's a great thing to end on you because I felt like you said something really important that there are doctors out there that may not have your level of understanding, but if you can be a partner in the situation and hopefully something in here leads you to ask the right questions and to be a little more direct, I think you'll find that most physicians want you to be better. They're not yeah. like, you know, unless you get one of those old crotchety guys who's like, this is how I've been doing it forever and you just leave me alone, you know, like, but but if you say to somebody, look, I'd like to test my blood more frequently, every four to six weeks, I want to get an idea of what's really happening here. I don't think anyone's going to say no. You, you know, you just have to have the nerve to to ask. And, and when people say no, 
I'm a proponent of why. If somebody says no to me, ask them why, because sometimes they don't know why they're saying no, other than that's just how we do it. And you've asked something Mm -hmm. outside of our norm. Uh, But that doesn't mean you can't. Uh, Anyway, that's that's what you get out of the podcast (laughs) if you listen. Uh, I really, really appreciate this. Thank you so much. That's my pleasure. I want to first thank Dr. Benito because she has a thriving practice that's full. She's not looking for new patients. She's not selling a book. She's not out doing anything, trying to drum up attention for herself. She was just very willing to spend the last hour and a half sharing what she knows about thyroid with you. I just can't thank her enough. I also want to thank Omnipod, Dexcom, and Touched by Type 1 for being longtime sponsors of the show. Check out that Dexcom G6 at Dexcom.com forward slash juicebox. Get your free no-obligation demo of the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump at myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox. And of course, Touched by Type 1 is at touchedbytype1.org. They're also on Facebook and Instagram.